0: in this era of white christian privilege where donald trump is doing what he can to push that agenda with your help we are keeping democracy alive
1: check for pulse stand clear oh, push shit. to check for pulse stand clear push to shot <laughs>
2: Dignity of man
0: Myth is so much nicer than reality Reassuring It makes us not have to think about Uncomfortable aspects of who we as Americans are In my elementary school We were all unquestioning patriots We were taught America is a unique Melting pot All cultures were absorbed equally Into something new a strong alloy in which we were all equally part. No culture dominated. That was the beauty of America. Well, we were also taught that we who owed our being to those that gave their lives to overthrowing colonialism would, of course, never support any big, rich country that colonized people who wanted to govern themselves and pff, daringly enough to determine their own course. Then came Vietnam. We sent hundreds of thousands of our young men and women to prevent the overthrow of colonialism, the thing I thought we were all about. The old myth was shown to be false. And for those of us growing up in the 50s and 60s, it was deeply upsetting. The myth of a melting pot is today being shattered. It is upsetting, but perhaps like the reality of our war in Vietnam, it is a crucial learning opportunity, which will make us better as a result. Of course, in this Trump era, there are more of those who allow themselves to believe that that America was intended by its founders to be a white Christian nation. So which was real? Are we a nation welcoming all religions equally? Or is that an illusion? Our guest today, Kia... Uh, Kiyathi Joshi has written a new book on this very timely and important topic called White Christian Privilege, The Illusion of Religious Equality in America. Thanks for being with us, Kiyathi.
1: Thank you for having me, Bert. It's nice to be with you.
0: It looks, the book looks at questions such as, what is Christianity in America? How has it been leveraged to maintain and reproduce structures of domination and subordination Are we really a nation of immigrants? We believe that we are the most religiously diverse country in the world, yet it may be the case that Christianity or some interpretation of it has always been integral to the country's national identity. We hear of white privilege. What is the reality? Has Christian privilege in the United States always been entangled with notions of white supremacy? in light of the nation's response to the murder of George Floyd and revelations of so many more that were done without cell phones that we now must face to achieve the change we say we want. How has this reality affected the lives, not just of white Christians and people of color, but indeed all Americans in often subtle ways? Well, Kyathe Joshi is a professor at Fairleigh Dickinson University. She's also the author of New Roots in America's Sacred Ground, Religion, Race, and Ethnicity in Indian America, and co-editor of Teaching for Diversity and Social Justice, 3rd edition. Well, again, thanks so much for being with us. This book seems to be especially timely today, but it didn't just pop into the scene instantly. How did you come to write this book? Who is the intended audience?
1: Well, no, it didn't just pop up now. Actually, I would say this book is about 20 years in the making. Wow. Um, I first started writing about Christian privilege as part of my doctoral dissertation work at UMass Amherst. Um, I'm a graduate of the social justice education program there. And when I brought it up, um, because I was learning about white privilege, which is very real, um, it occurred to me, actually, there is this thing called Christian privilege, and I do believe that I'm one of the first to actually start writing about it. Um, so it's 20 years in the making. It's a personal and professional endeavor. Um, personally, I am I'm uh, Indian American and Hindu, mm-hmm. so I grew up. Um, I'm proud to call. Um, atlanta georgia home Mm. um and i grew up in atlanta and the suburbs and i was a little brown hindu girl Mm. you know i wasn't black i wasn't white honestly a lot of people didn't know what to do with me (laughs) you know and i was hindu and my family said they were hindu and sometimes when we said that we just got these kind of quizzical looks you know so i experienced discrimination but i also experienced what we now know as white privilege and, in some cases, white Christian privilege, but I didn't have the language for that, right. you know? So to answer your other question about the intended audience, right. this, this book is for anyone who is interested in wanting to help um, perfect our union, you know? It's for anyone who's interested in social justice issues, it is for Christians and for religious minorities, and for those who identify as atheist or agnostic, because it is a way of understand. It provides you um, with information to better understand how we've gotten to where we've gotten to as a nation.
0: Yeah, interesting. I know, until recently, many white people kind of thought racism only affected those other people, the people of color. But as you say, white privilege is often invisible, what is white privilege, and what is the common reaction when when white Christians first get it? I, I've seen a lot of people recently, like, just wake up to this, and it's, it's interesting. Right. What do you observe?
1: Right. Um, well, I'm observing that, and I've been observing that for 20 years when people are exposed to these concepts. Um You know, privilege is very difficult for people to understand, but when we're talking about privilege in the sense of working for equity and justice, we're talking about largely unearned advantages that somebody has because of their particular social identity. So if we're talking white privilege, and many people bristle, right? They want to say, what do you mean? Um, I've had to work really hard to get where I've gotten, and, you know, or as a Jewish person, I face anti-Semitism. All of that can be true, and if you're a white person, you still can have white privilege, but in the case of someone who's jewish they don't have christian privilege right so we have to be able to tease apart these identities and and white privilege is you had nothing to do with it if you have it except for to be born white in america or immigrate here and you know and you're a white person um it's a product of systemic racism because advantages for white folks have been embedded in public policy, in federal legislation, in Supreme Court decisions, as has Christian privilege. And the thing is, is that we are not taught this. This is often invisible until we make it visible. And, but once people start seeing it, they, they start understanding. And that's what I've seen Um, while I've been teaching and researching about this for 20 years, I've been actually doing a lot of public speaking over the last decade or so, and I have found that more people than not actually want to have real U.S. history, want to know real U.S. history, right, want to be able to understand these things, and that's what led me to actually write this book.
0: Yeah, interesting. I think... I love history, quite frankly, and I, th- I think more and more people are, are waking up to it. It's not the great white man, those guys up on Mount Rushmore, and no, Donald Trump, you are not there. Uh, it, it, it's it, we, ne- we need to learn from history to see where we are, because people are uncomfortable the more they realize. Uh, you you assert that Christianity does dominate U.S. society. You argue by setting the tone and establishing the rules and assumptions about Who belongs and who does not, about what is acceptable and not acceptable in public discourse. Say more about that, please.
1: Sure. So, if we're talking present day, you know, we can think about, um, uh, I think about everyday Christian privilege, for example. And it's about um, how we think about someone praying. So, is your, you know, how does prayer usually get depicted? Well, it gets depicted sitting in a pew hands folded, sitting quietly. Uh. Um, But that's not how I pray, as a Hindu. That's not how others pray, but the quote-unquote normal way of praying is that. We can also see it when we do our civic duty and go serve, um, you know, take on jury duty. Um, We have evidence where jurors, when someone did not take the oath on a Bible, jurors have actually said They weren't sure they could trust that person, Mm -hmm. you know? So, you know, as a Hindu, if I take it on the Gita, or if a Muslim person takes it on the Quran, it's seen less than. That is not seen as sacred scripture, because there's actually only one scripture in that person's mind that is holy, right? So I've gotten this over the years. We see this privilege, we see this normativity, if you will, when someone asks, well, what's your Christmas? or what's your Bible, right? We we have to change that language to make it more inclusive and to understand there's not just one.
0: Boy, if you look at the history of of immigration and how immigrants have been treated in this country, uh, you you might be surprised. I think of uh, Woodrow Wilson and so many other people. Mm -hmm. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. Our guest today is Kiathi Joshi, who's got a brand new book called White Christian Privilege, The Illusion of Religious Equality in Uh, in America. Yeah, so much, so much illusion. And, you know, people prefer illusion. They think, you know, a Bible, of course that's it if you don't swear in a Bible. And, of course, 9-11 really confused people and obviously uh, you know uh, agitated a whole bunch of incredible racism people confusing Hindus with Muslims and certainly Hindus do not confuse Muslims with being Hindus we know that so you grew up Hindu in the 1980s in the Bible belt the so-called Bible belt how did that inform your motivation for this book
1: well, yeah, I have uh several personal stories in the book and there's several that are not there. Um it was, you know, um I just didn't fit in. Um I was made fun of. I was bullied um uh, pretty badly in middle school and even high school. Um National Geographic played a role in that because I would um You know, kids would be like, do you have your own pet elephant, or what's your mud hut like, you know, and things like that. Um, The fact, and this continues, we see this in popular culture in the 90s and even in 2000s, um, where various Hindu deities, like Ganesh, who is half human, half uh, elephant, you know, are depicted in caricature ways, not in respectful ways. And so I encountered a lot of that. One of the experiences I had that I didn't realize what was happening is that my um, I was in middle school, or eighth or ninth grade, and my high school had this Shakespeare festival every year, and it was at the local civic center. So I was at the civic center, and during intermission of the Shakespeare play, we're all hanging out in the lobby. And my classmates go outside, and my, my teachers, a couple of them, come, come to me and pull me aside. Now, I was kind of a goody-two-shoes goody in school, yeah. so I was a little worried, Bert, when I got pulled aside. Like, what did I do? Well, I only found out many, many, many years later that there was a Klan rally happening <gasps> outside. Oh, my God. And that they were concerned. And didn't want me going out, because I was practically the only student of color um, in the entire high school, you know, in suburban Atlanta at the time. Um, And, you know, I've thought about that a lot, and I've thought about how my teachers didn't have the language to talk to me about that. I wish they would have, you know. But instead, nobody wanted me to know what happened. Nobody said anything to my parents.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: None of that was done, right? So there, was, there were lots of experiences that couldn't be explained at the time, mm-hmm. and that later than I learned about, um, you know, my father is an OBGYN and he practiced for 40 years, almost 40 years in Atlanta, Georgia. And when his um, a, a wonderful woman was his office manager, And she went to work for him, and soon thereafter, she's a white, Southern Baptist woman, soon thereafter her church congregation, members of it, gave her a hard time for working for my dad. You know? He wasn't Christian, he was this dark-skinned man, and she always defended him. and. Actually, a few years after some of the grumbling started, a new minister came to the church, Uh-oh. and his wife eventually ended up working for my dad. Oh, ah. uh-huh. you know, so
3: you know,
1: um, I have stories like that in the book also, you know, but it white Christian privilege kind of comes out in so many, many different ways, and we have to see that. You know, one of the issue, one of the reasons I talk about illusion is that. People believe because we have freedom of religion enshrined in the First Amendment that that's the case for all religions, and that's the illusion. It's not the case for all religions.
0: No, no, it's not, and uh, it brings up so many issues that are that are current right now. And this does seem to be a time where we're facing a lot of things we'd rather not face. You know, just keep keep the blinders on, keep going, but. You know, it may be hard to face reality as opposed to myth, but good, good for us. We're doing that.
2: Yeah.
0: And, you know, I've always considered myself not to be an American Jew, but a Jewish American. I look white, but there's a difference, as I found out later in life. Is, is white Christian and American synonymous?
1: Uh, they often are used synonymously. Yeah. Uh-huh. And sometimes when people are talking about American nationalism mm. um, particularly American exceptionalism, mm. we need to be able to talk about white supremacy and Christian supremacy right there. Oh, yeah. Because it is there. And that's why I think it's really important we tease out that as a Jewish person, you will face anti-Semitism, and as a white person, you have white privilege. They, they, it's not mutually exclusive. You have different identities, you know? <laughs> True. Um, and that, that, that takes some time getting your head around, though, you know? <laughs> we, we do have to be able to kind of have places we can go to talk about these things and think about them, and that's what we're kind of lacking.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. To I am male, obviously. It's uh, boy. We have a lot of work to do. (laughs) White-looking males. There's no doubt about that. It's very confusing, and it's a good time. You know, you don't learn by not learning.
1: (laughs) It is, and you know, you brought up if you know, white and Christian and American are used interchangeably. Uh Yes, they are. And the thing is, is that we have to see why that's the case. Yes. And that's where, you know, history can come in. Most people don't understand that when you look at, for example, you know, you refer to the melting pot and immigration. Mm -hmm. When we think about our immigration laws, there's, we have to see the role religion has played there, you know, and a few examples I can give you is, it starts way back in 1882 with chinese exclusion act i mean ah. the chinese were largely not christian right. and so a lot you know they were talked about as heathens they were talked about as being dirty mm-hmm. um carriers of disease all these things um that played into the fact that we then passed congress passed the 1882 chinese exclusion act saying that if no one from china with few minor exceptions could come to the United States. Right. Now, you fast forward to two particular immigration acts, 1917 and 1924. Oh, yes. And they now really show us the kind of country that um, Congress was essentially trying to socially engineer. The Immigration Act of 1917 banned immigrants from most of Asia. So I always say to my students when I'm teaching, you know. Think about what religions, then, couldn't come over, mm-hmm. right? And then think about the Immigration Act of 1924, which really sealed the deal um, for Asians not coming to the U.S., but it also impacted those coming from Southern and Eastern Europe. Oh, yeah. Right? Only 2% of the population, based on the 1890 census, were going to be allowed in, Now. When we look at the religious background of those immigrants, we're talking Catholic, Jewish, and Eastern or Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, not Protestant. So we were socially engineering a white Protestant nation with just these two immigration acts as examples.
0: It's interesting how the right wing accuses the left of uh, of social engineering. Ha. Huh. <laughs> Is that, yeah. you know, Woodrow Wilson, the more he is not a good guy. Under Woodrow Wilson, immigrants were openly considered less than American. Very, yeah. d- very clearly, he called them hyphenated Americans. It was all part of the uh, switching from being anti First World War to being, yeah, yeah, go kill those Huns, which is again, in fact, the Germans actually fought the Huns. But anyway, they were not 100% Americans. That continued. Well into the twentieth century, are we still burdened with with you know hyphenated Americans, immigrants considered less than American? I I guess we are. I mean,
1: yeah, those are. laws are. You know, those sometimes l- somebody will say to me, Kathy, why are you? Why do you have to say Indian American or Asian American? Hmm. And I say, well, American as itself doesn't just doesn't include me, you know, <laughs> True. and. I'm proud to be Indian American. I'm, you know, I'm, i very proud. Uh, I was born in India. I'm a naturalized U.S. citizen. Um, I came to this country at a very young age, but I have a lot of family there, you know. So I'm, I'm proud of that. But I also am very proud to be in this country, and I actually believe that doing the social justice work that I do, writing this book, it is. You know, one of the most patriotic things I can do, Bert, because yes. it is a way to help um, perfect the union. It really is.
0: Oh, no question about it, and we, we all have to do that. It's what citizenship is about. It's not uh, a spectator sport. We have to yes. do that ourselves and participate in it. That's what our founders intended, really. I, people, I've actually heard people insist that our founders you know, since they were all white Christian men, that they intended America to be a Christian nation. What, thinking of history, what what have you learned about that?
1: Well, I don't necessarily agree that that's what their intent was necessarily, but that is a little bit of what we can see transpired when we look at um, what has occurred through U.S. history. I mean, look, let's just, you know, very briefly Start at the beginning, when the Puritans came here seeking religious freedom, which we all learn in first grade, and we learned this myth that America was founded for, on religious freedom, mm-hmm. for religious freedom. Well, nah, we got to do a little myth-busting there, because the Puritans came over seeking religious freedom, but they were in it for themselves they weren't looking for everyone else you know um uh, in terms of native americans right they believed they were ordained by god to kind of spread the good news yeah. um across what was considered new israel yes right? and so the concept of manifest destiny has completely christian foundations you can go to um the doctrine of discovery which is a church decree from the pope at the time And this basically said any land not inhabited by Christians could be claimed and exploited by European colonizers. Now, they didn't use that language, but that's what happened, you know? And so that's Native Americans. I mean, we see that with African Americans and slavery, um, the Bible was used as justification for why they should have slavery, why slavery should exist, you know? And then we even look at citizenship. All right, you brought, you just brought up citizenship. Congress passed a law in 1790 that said you had to be a free white man and then they amended it a little in 1795 to see be to be a free white man of good moral character to be a citizen of this country. Right. That that was there from the get-go. Now that's what we said about immigration. In after the 14th amendment, African Americans um are granted citizenship, along with the 14th Amendment and a, and a Naturalization Act of 1790. I mean, I'm sorry, 1870. Um, but the Chinese, the Native Americans, other Asian groups, were not allowed to become citizens until later, right? And even Christianity, there's a role that Christianity plays in the acquisition of citizenship. We see in primary source documents out of California when there was debate happening whether African Americans should get citizenship or right after they did, okay, well, you know, they've accepted Christ. It's okay. They're okay. But we have to make sure that the Chinaman and that the Indian don't get citizenship.
0: Hmm. Yeah. White Christian privilege. Yes, that's the title of the book. (laughs) That's what we're talking about here. Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is Kayathi Joshi. Very important new book, White Christian Privilege, The Illusion of Religious Equality in America. And there is the, you know, we all, all, I think, uh, grew up believing that religious freedom is important. I mean, my ancestors came here for religious freedom to escape uh, the rather nasty uh, Russians. Uh, A whole bunch of people have done that for at least in part religious freedom, also to make a buck or two somehow. Uh, oh, let's uh, suddenly, the Supreme Court is looking at it, and uh, I wonder if we could look at compare the old notion of religious freedom with its current version, which specifically enables, specifically enables discrimination and dominance and control. I know it's not in your book, but it's reality happening
1: now. It is reality. It is reality, and we've seen it with court decisions just in the last few days. Right. What what it's um a little disconcerting to see what's happening because religious identity is being privileged over other identities, especially when it comes to civil rights. Um in terms of some of the, you know, the the court decision, the Supreme Court decision regarding right. um what uh basically, you know, what ministers and folks at a religious school can do. And essentially it's It's very problematic. Yeah. Um, what we have to be able to see though is that while in theoretically it's privileging religion uh, over other identities, we have to see how they are actually you know fundamentally privileging Christianity. Um, there was a case there in Montana, I think it was last week the court decided um, that if you know vouchers, also have to be provided for, funding has to, not vouchers, funding also has to go to religious schools if it's going to go for X, Y, and Z purpose. And I think what we have to do is keep an eye out on that, because, you know, will Jewish day schools get uh, access to that funding also? Will Muslim schools get access to that funding also? Or is it only really going to benefit... Christian schools, and that's where we have to keep an eye
0: on things. Who, boy, is that dangerous territory. Betsy DeVos, thank you so much. Amazing. She's, of course, the uh, head of the Department of Education, out to destroy public education in some people's minds, including yes. mine. Yes. Now, uh, yes. we're getting to the, uh, the uh, bedrock principle, or at least we think it is, the separation of church and state. That was a line pulled from one of Thomas Jefferson's letters and largely unremarked upon until the Supreme Court referred to it in nineteen forty seven. Tell us a bit about its backstory, the separation of church and state. something we I strongly believe in. I hope it's got a bedrock. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, um, people believe it has a bedrock, so it's come to have a bedrock, and be part of the bedrock, if you will. Um, that phrase is not anywhere in our founding
3: documents.
1: Um, it, it was in a letter, as you referenced, um, and actually was largely forgotten about until the um, 1947 case uh, in, with Everson. And... Look at the time way back when um, we were a country. You know that already had many denominations. There were the Mennonites. There were the Quakers. There were the Catholics. There were the Congregationalists. Uh, states also before we were uh, before 1776. States did have, in some cases, an official state religion. So when it came time to form, you know, a national government. Um, Different religious denominations might have wanted their denomination to be the one, but the truth is, um, a scholar has referred to this as a mutual assurance pact. Like, okay, if it can't be mine, that's fine, but then it can't be yours. You know, I kind of call it a little bit of like middle school politics. Um, But that's really what happened. And so, yes, there were some who truly did not want to have a state religion, and they saw what religion had done in terms of wars and destruction Mm. in Europe. But there were others where it was really, well, if it can't be mine, it's not going to be yours, and we're going to end up with a, quote-unquote, religiously neutral country, which is not what happened in reality, but it was there Mm. on paper.
0: Yeah, sort of like a protection racket. If I can't have it, you can't have it. So, mutual assurance pact. Well, Trump likes that uh, Sopranos model, after all. Well, when, you know, there's whole, there's a lot of invisibles here. Things that we don't think about, like clothing styles. It's one of the domains in which white uh, Christian privilege effectively disadvantages those who are not Christian. I also think about, I always wonder about the phrase classical music. What? Wait a minute. But uh, talk talk about music and and culture, clothing styles, and white Christian privilege, please.
1: Yes, yes. No, and that's just it. There's classical music. There's the Renaissance. Well, you know, actually, the Renaissance have happened around the world at many different times, but we really should clarify and say European Renaissance. Yes. You know, Um, so that issue of what it gets, That what you're getting at there is what gets normalized, what's just considered, what's considered normal. And it's really things, um, when you bring up clothing, what's considered normal is what was normal and what is done in Protestant white Christianity, (laughs) in Protestant white faith, Right, so there's no uh, issue of head coverings with Protestant Christians, um, but observant Sikhs observant Jews will have it, and so then accommodations have to be made. What we have to understand is the minute you're talking about accommodations, that should tell you that something is considered the norm. You know, Um, do you know, uh, for any of your listeners um, who went to public school in America and remember on Fridays having pizza, cheese pizza, or fish stick Fridays, that was an accommodation.
0: Yes, yeah, I remember having a calendar of that and asking uh, when I was a little kid, it, there was always a fish stamped on the day Friday, and I never could f- quite figure out why. Right. Right. but that was right. that was normal. That was the calendar.
1: right. And that was Catholics being accommodated. Yeah. Now many others also observe Lent, not just Catholics, right. but uh, you know that was done. Today, we try to be observant for those who keep kosher or keep halal, mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm. and and these are extra steps people have to take, or, you know, the thing about Christian privilege and white privilege and white Christian privilege, when you have privilege, you don't have to exert extra energy to be who you are. Mm-hmm. That's another way to think about it. You don't have to exert extra energy to eat the food you're, you need to eat, or buy the food, or buy the clothing, you know, and... Those of us who don't have that privilege, some of our energies get exerted in that way, which leaves the the people who have the privilege with more energy to do things in their life. That's a way to think about it. That
0: is a good way to think about it. It's always good to look at things from a a different angle. And as former state senator, I was involved with the uh, quest for equal rights for all gender identities. And people who fought against such equality argued it was special rights for gays are religious minorities also portrayed as wanting special rights i mean that's just
1: nuts (laughs) yeah it does it does make me nuts also and drive me crazy um the thing is is that yeah you know so the religious right is very good at messaging i have to give them that right they're very good at it and they started this idea of special rights around um, in the, I would say in the eighties into the nineties um, around gay and lesbian issues, and it really became an issue around civil unions. And then when we were talking about marriage equality, mm-hmm. that they oh they're asking for special rights. And when someone's not really paying attention, and you hear that somebody's asking for special rights, well, no, that's not American. No, no, it's equal rights. We they should not be getting special rights. But that's. The marketing that that conservative Amazing. Christian America has done well, right? We do see that language sometimes with religious minorities. Um, you know, should Sikhs be allowed to serve in the military? You know, should we, um, allow, you know, not allow pork in schools? You know, and then all of a sudden, it, it's about you're catering to this population. All right,
3: special rights. Know? Mm-hmm.
1: When. No, they're asking for equal rights. Exactly. You know, they're asking for equal rights. Right. So we have to uh, be very mindful when we start hearing that language. Anytime you hear the phrase special rights, please kind of dig into the issue a little more.
0: Oh, uh, it's always interesting. You know, when I first started this show, I didn't think there'd be all that much to talk about. I've been doing it 15 years now. It goes on and on and on. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, uh, Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about something very important to keeping democracy alive. Uh, Kiyoshi, um, no, I'm sorry, Kiyosha Joshi has written a new book called White Christian Privilege, The Illusion of Religious Equality in America. Well, I, I do watch the news in this Trump era. It's wicked, depressing. But Christianity makes frequent appearances in our media, and you argue that it appears often more in the subtext. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, sometimes it's in the subtext, and sometimes yeah. it's right there, oh, you yeah. know, kind of... Slapping us in the, the face. face. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, we see it with even the topics that are given preference to what uh-huh. are the national issues.
3: Oh, interesting. Yeah. Right? Uh-huh.
1: You know, what are considered the moral issues of our time? You know, oh, being gay or, the, or issues of abortion, you know? Why isn't environmental justice a moral issue? Not really? Right. But it's because who's made it a moral issue? Now, we are, the, there is a religious left, and yes. they are trying to make it. And, and uh, a moral issue, sure. environmental justice and racial justice, right? But it's about who gets to define mm-hmm. what are what are the, quote-unquote, American, the moral issues in America. It's been conservative Christians, you know? So that's how it comes out in a little bit of subtext. But then you've got what Trump did a few weeks back, you know, go wave the Bible. Oh, I believe it was upside down, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in front of St. John. What what is he saying? He's saying I'm here, we're gonna be fine. And who's that? We? Well, it's not forty percent of the country that doesn't identify as Christian.
0: Forty percent.
1: Forty percent.
0: I did not know that. Well, I haven't gotten that image from TV. Uh, Fascinating how you know they're
1: focused. Everyone's focused on evangelicals, you know. And even when we're talking about race there is a lot of conversations happening around racism within the church sure. and let me say that there's conversations need to happen and actions need to be taken what i'm talking about is how christianity has influenced white supremacy how christianity is part of white supremacy you know so it's a much broader conversation Um, including different religious minorities and those who are racial and religious minorities.
0: Yeah, people don't, a lot of people don't understand that when, when, you know, these uh, uh, white supremacy, I look white, but it doesn't include me. It does not include me. I'm Jewish. Arguably, the dominant approach to diversity in the U.S. Pluralism sets its goal as appreciation, awareness, and learning about minorities and cultures, including some of the challenges they face, such as discrimination. I always bristle at the word tolerance. Mm. You argue it misses key understandings, such as how does the frame offered by the social justice approach you advocate differ from that approach?
1: Justice takes into account that you are going to account for privilege and power right you're going to look at you uh, know inter- interfaith efforts that are really about promoting pluralism and tolerance miss the mark they're important i'm not saying they're not important. Breaking bread with different folks is so critical. understanding uh, how we are similar is important, but what I'm saying is that we're going to first have to acknowledge. Not first. We need to acknowledge that not all religions can practice their faith freely here, and then understand why, and that gets that white Christian privilege. We also have to fundamentally understand that we are different. Our religions are different. We pray differently. Um, some pray to an image of God. Some pray to many images of God. Some pray to no image of God. Yes. You know, and so that understanding has to be there if we're really going to partner with each other to, you know, work for justice. But that has to happen.
0: Work for justice. That's uh, thank goodness. That's in vogue these days. Well, wow. uh, and I do love history. I often talk about World War One, probably to the uh, consternation of listeners. But I, f- I find the more I learn the more there is to learn. To follow the ties connecting whiteness and Christianity, you say we need to go back to the 15th century. What was going on then that conflated the two constructs?
1: Yeah, yeah. To understand the modern concept of race, we do have to go back to 1300s, 1400s. Hmm. And what was going on was you had Jews and Moors. Muslim people in the Iberian Peninsula, right, Portugal area, and um, they were facing a tremendous amount of discrimination and exclusion. And so many converted. They were called Jews were called conversos, and the Muslims Moriscos. And so they converted. But here's the thing: even though they were converted, they weren't accepted, right? There was this idea of blood purity. And that um, even if you converted, you were still secretly Jewish. Uh Or even if you converted, you were actually really still Muslim. So it actually very much put this notion, Mm. um, it essentialized identity. It it Mm. started rooting one's identity in biology. And then eventually, that morphs. Hmm. Right so then we get I'm um, fast forwarding a couple of 100 years and we get the through the enlightenment and moving onwards this idea of scientific racism. Oh yeah. In the 1800s it really took off and European and American academics had a role to play where they were trying to figure out you know how to show that white people are superior not if they are but to show they are. Right. Superior mm-hmm. and black people inferior, and then the rest of us kind of in the middle somewhere, you know, uh, based on skin color and other attributes. And this ideology, um, you know, Congress relied on it in in um, as, as ex, uh, from expert testimony uh-huh. in, in making, for example, the immigration laws. Okay, scientific racism is also the precursor to Nazi oh, yeah. ideology. Oh yeah. So it's all connected,
0: and of course, there's the wonderful science of phrenology. <clears throat>
1: <Yeah>. Right, right. <laughs> and that was part of it. That was part of you know measuring cranial size oh, yeah. and diameter of the nose, and all of this is part of scientific racism.
0: I don't like racism. Uh, what, what can I say? I really don't like don't like racism. And I don't hate a lot of things. I do hate fascism, racism, and imperialism. Christianity, race, imperialism, and expansion all came together in what we were taught in middle school history. Manifest destiny. Yeah. How did these things all come together as manifest destiny? And I'm amazed how many people still like that term.
1: Well, yes. Um, the White House had an ad out just the other day oh, um, <laughs> about, about destiny is what the image said and then in the text they talked about manifest destiny, which is again, some might say a dog whistle. I say it's pretty overt as to what they're saying, you know? Um so first of all, manifest destiny is rooted in uh whiteness and in Christianity, right? It was about taking uh the land here from sea to shining sea. Mm-hmm. Um and it didn't matter who was in who was already living there. Nope. Right, if that that didn't matter. I mean, we when the United States acquired the Southwest United States mm-hmm. during in the Guadalupe uh, Guadalupe Hidalgo Treaty, um, because the United States won the Mexican American War, there mm-hmm. were people living there. But what happened? Westward expansion, Manifest Destiny. People would show up there. Companies would show up. You know, in Arizona, in New Mexico, and say to families who had lived on that land for generations will show us the deed. Yeah. Do you think they had a deed? Come on. <laughs> and that's how the land was taken.
0: Right. My ancestors didn't have, uh, you know, they didn't come to America with proper paperwork in 1890. It didn't exist. And I have to say, there's the, the state of Israel. There were people there before, but it was similar kind of manifest destiny you cite this a legal case, uh, a couple of legal cases, Engel 1962 and Schemp 1963, as examples of Supreme Court evenly applying the First Amendment's establishment cause to Christianity, yet the cases nevertheless fueled the notion that government was taking religion out of schools. How was that interpretation propagated and how correct was it?
1: Well, again, um, it's you know, the way those two cases got interpreted and then those myths got perpetuated impacts education to this day. So these two cases were taking prayer out of school and the reading of the Bible out of school. That's what they were taking out of school. They were not taking religion out of school. Indeed, Justice Clark, in the Abington decision in 1963, Said that one's education is not complete without the study of religion. All right, but what has how this been interpreted is conservative Christians have seen this as an attack on Christianity, on uh, religion, yes. right. not being in schools. And we have teachers. I teach teachers. I teach uh, our public school, private school, religious school teachers who are both, um, you know, come back to get their masters or are. Our future teachers,
3: mm-hmm. and
1: overwhelmingly, when I walk into a school or I'm working with a school, they'll be like, "Oh yeah, we don't um, we don't do religion here. We don't want to talk about religion." How can you wow. teach about certain parts of history and not talk about religion? Uh, that's not okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's not okay. And they and they the,
0: they don't realize what they're doing there. I'm sure.
1: That's right. That's right. And the other thing is, is that they'll say, "No, we we don't deal with religion," and I say, "Well, actually." You need to, because Christianity is already here. Yeah. It's in our schools. So can we please bring in other faiths so that other students' and teachers' lives are actually realized and acknowledged? Well, To think Christianity is not there is another illusion.
0: Uh, we so prefer illusions and myths in this country. It's so much easier than real history. We don't want to be challenged. And... You know, here it is, 2020, and there's raging hatred roaming our streets these days. I think it's at least in part because white Christian men will soon be a minority, and they can't stand it. Fear and manipulation of fear are extremely potent political motivators. Trumpists are pouring gasoline on this fire. What can be done to cool it?
1: Well, I think we have to see, actually, what's, what's transpiring in reality. So we do see these headlines sometimes that whites will be, uh, you know, a minority. And then there's, you know, real census figures that show that might happen. We have data from the Pew Research Forum that shows us that those who identify as Christians is on the decline. Um, But the way it gets pitched, it's kind of like, hey, white Christian folks, You know, you're gonna become obsolete. You're not gonna matter, and so it increases in fear and anxiety. Yes. Explaining what's happening. Here's the deal. Let's say 2040 comes along. Let's say 2050 comes along, and white folks become the numerical minority. Do you think it's gonna erase 400 years of white Christian privilege that's been embedded in public policy and law? No. Those advantages continue to be there. So we got to look at what's reality.
0: <laughs> oh, but that's so hard. And I'm, I'm reminded in that uh, uh, demonstration uh, a few years ago that Trump said we're very fine people when, when these white young men were yelling, Jews will not replace us. They're afraid of being replaced. And just a little bit of more recent history, before Lyndon Johnson's signature on the 1965 Voting Rights Act, pretty much all racists had been Democrat. Now it can be said that all racists are Republican, though of course not all Republicans are racist. But that same year he signed the Immigration Reform Act saying this is not a revolutionary bill. It does not affect the lives of millions. It will not reshape the structure of our daily lives. You disagree. Why?
1: Yeah, because it actually did all of that and then um some... um, the Immigration Act of 1965 is actually part of my family story um, of coming to this country. Um, if you recall earlier, I was saying in 1924, we really kind of shut the door on immigration from Asia and from Europe. It really came to a, it. It slowed down to a trickle. And between 64, and uh, I mean, between 24 and 65, there were a few exceptions, um, not nearly enough, I would argue, especially during the Holocaust, during World War II and what was happening to Jews in Europe. Um, in '65, President Johnson signed this bill, um, and it has fundamentally changed the demographics in terms of race, religion, and ethnicity in this country. We would not have the diversity we have without this Immigration Act. Um, like I said, it's how my family came here. We are, we immigrated to this country in 1971.
0: I got to tell you, I was very much opposed to the war in Vietnam. Without that war, Lyndon Johnson might be remembered as a pretty great president. He tried to do some really good things. And being a Southerner, it took some chutzpah, which I don't think is an Indian word. I believe it's Jewish. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but you know what I mean. And, yes. and, and he did that. And of course, Trump signed uh, Executive Order 13769, known as the Muslim ban, as soon as he got into office. Some lamented it was not who we are as a nation. You disagree. Why? What do such policies reveal about our claim to being a nation of
1: immigrants? Well, I think you can take, you know, the Muslim ban, you can take the way we have separated families. You can take putting children in cages and might be saying this is not who we are as a nation. And in fact, it is, if you know your real United States history, you know we've done this before. This is part of our our history. Yes. In 1917, we said we didn't want part, most of Asia coming to the United States, right? There mm-hmm. was a ban. Called the Bard Zone Act for a reason we banned these immigrants from coming and what in terms of separation separating children from their families yeah. the present-day that's what we did to Native American children um, and by setting up boarding schools Dartmouth yes. in your state being one of the most famous mm. um, now Ivy League school but it started out as a boarding school for Native Americans converting them to mm-hmm. Christianity and where they literally beat the Indian out of the child, right? That was the mm-hmm. wording they used, not mine. And so we've done this before. So um, I was kind of almost throwing things at my television when I'd hear the TV pundits and all saying, this is not who we are as a country, because I'm like, you need to get, out of, get off of television. You,
0: you don't know your United States history. I wish more people did. I wish people I uh, more history. In In the 50s, which I remember, white racists, especially down south, hated rock and roll because it meant black and white kids were dancing together, threatening their white privilege. So fast forward, and it seems the youth of religious minorities today are intentionally and particularly susceptible to the pressures of white Christian privilege. How How is that... Uh, expressed, how can, how can they best be supported?
1: Well, so um, in my book, I actually spend a great amount of time on history and law, and I also spend a good amount of time on talking about the impact of white Christian privilege on Christians as well as religious minorities. And uh-huh. what happens with religious minorities is that um, they can start internalizing ideas about their own faith not being normal or not being or being a little backwards or being a little odd. So we have data that shows that sometimes muslim kids have thought less of themselves uh-huh. and their family right. because oh well what do you need we fast for a month, you know, like how you know isn't that a little fanatical? Right they they start mm. using the language, they start internalizing the language mm. that Mainstream America is using to characterize their religion. You know, Hindus. You know, what do you mean? Um, you know, you pray to all of these different gods. They look like comic book figures, right? Or rituals that are done that are not the way they're done. It doesn't look like you're at church or something, right? They get to be seen as odd, different, and so we have to counter that. I, I mm. listen. We know from research, if students can be proud of who they are, then then there's increased self-esteem. And if there's increased self-esteem, you have increased
0: academic achievement. (sighs) Seems pretty clear. Well, it's it's an old, big, deep problem. We got to face it. We haven't faced it yet. We refuse to even see it. What can be done to bring about the change that we need? What do you think?
1: Um, There's a couple of things. Uh, I think a lot of people, especially right now, have started reading. So absolutely reading this book and others and listening to conversations, Bert, like you and I are having, is a good start, but you can't stop there. You've mm-hmm. got to take action. You've got to look at who's part of your community and who isn't, you know? Mm-hmm. And you've got to think about what are the issues that are facing different communities, and then you're going to have to use Brian Stevenson's phrase of getting proximate. We can't solve the problems from afar. You're going to have to get down and dirty, you know, and you've got to take action. And you might be scared to take action. Mm. You might be feeling uncomfortable to take action. Well, what I can say is you can't wait till you feel comfortable. You're going to be waiting an awfully long time. You're going to have to jump in and know oh, yes. that you're probably going to make mistakes, and you got to own up to those mistakes, but then you got to keep on going.
0: you got to get out of your comfort zone to make important changes. The book is called White Christian Privilege, The Illusion of Religious Equality in America. And our guest has been uh, Kiyati Joshi, the author of that book. Thank you so much uh, for doing this. And uh, we got work to do. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
2: bigger than you, and you are not me. The things that I will go to, the distance in your eyes. Oh no, I've said too much. I set it up. That's me in the corner. That's me in Spot light losing my religion I'm trying.